Book Two, Chapter Seven, Part Four of The Octopus by Frank Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The audience, at first bewildered, confused by this unexpected invective, suddenly took fire at his last words. There was a roar of applause, then, more significant than mere vociferation, Presley's listeners, as he began to speak again, grew suddenly silent. His next sentences were uttered in the midst of a profound stillness. "'They own us, these taskmasters of ours. They own our homes. They own our legislatures. We cannot escape from them. There is no redress. We are told we can defeat them by the ballot-box.' They own the ballot box. We are told that we must look to the courts for redress. They own the courts. We know them for what they are. Ruffians in politics, ruffians in finance, ruffians in law, ruffians in trade, bribers, swindlers, and tricksters. No outrage too great to daunt them. No petty larceny too small to shame them. Despoiling a government treasury of a million dollars yet picking the pockets of a farmhand for the price of a loaf of bread. They swindle a nation of a hundred million and call it financiering. They levy a blackmail and call it commerce. They corrupt the legislature and call it politics. They bribe a judge and call it law. They hire blacklegs to carry out their plans and call it organization. They prostitute the honor of a state and call it competition. And this is America. We fought Lexington to free ourselves. We fought Gettysburg to free others. Yet the yoke remains. We have only shifted it to the other shoulder. We talk of liberty. Oh, the farce of it. Oh, the folly of it. We tell ourselves and teach our children that we have achieved liberty that we no longer need to fight for it. Why, the fight is just beginning, and so long as our conception of liberty remains as it is today, it will continue. For we conceive of liberty in the statues we raise to her as a beautiful woman, crowned victorious in bright armor and white robes, a light in her uplifted hand, a serene, calm, conquering goddess. Oh, the farce of it. Oh, the folly of it. Liberty is not a crowned goddess, beautiful in spotless garments, victorious, supreme. Liberty is the man in the street, a terrible figure rushing through powder smoke, fouled with the mud and ordure of the gutter, bloody, rampant, brutal yelling curses in one hand a smoking rifle in the other a blazing torch freedom is not given free to any who ask liberty is not born of the gods she is a child of the people born in the very height and heat of battle born from death stained with blood grimed with powder and she grows to be not a goddess, but a fury, a fearful figure, slaying friend and foe alike, raging, insatiable, merciless, the Red Terror! Presley ceased speaking. 
Weak, shaking, scarcely knowing what he was about, he descended from the stage. A prolonged explosion of applause followed, the opera house roaring to the roof, men cheering, stamping, waving their hats. But it was not intelligent applause. Instinctively, as he made his way out, Presley knew that, after all, he had not once held the hearts of his audience. He had talked as he would have written. For all his scorn of literature, he had been literary. The men who listened to him, ranchers, country people, storekeepers, attentive though they were, were not once sympathetic. Vaguely, they had felt that here was something which other men, more educated, would possibly consider eloquent. They applauded vociferously, but perfunctorily, in order to appear to understand. Presley, for all his love of the people, saw clearly for one moment that he was an outsider to their minds. He had not helped them nor their cause in the least. He never would. Disappointed, bewildered, ashamed, he made his way slowly from the opera house and stood on the steps outside, thoughtful, his head bent. He had failed, thus he told himself. In that moment of crisis, that at the time he believed had been an inspiration, he had failed. The people would not consider him, would not believe that he could do them service. Then, suddenly, he seemed to remember. The resolute set of his lips returned once more. Pushing his way through the crowded streets, he went on toward the stable where he had left his pony. Meanwhile, in the opera house, a great commotion had occurred. Magnus Derrick had appeared. Only a sense of enormous responsibility, of gravest duty, could have prevailed upon Magnus to have left his house and the dead body of his son that day. But he was the president of the League, and never since its organization had a meeting of such importance as this one been held. He had been in command at the irrigating ditch the day before. It was he who had gathered the handful of Leaguers together. It was he who must bear the responsibility of the fight. When he had entered the opera house, making his way down the central aisle toward the stage, a loud disturbance had broken out, partly applause, partly a meaningless uproar. Many had pressed forward to shake his hands, but others were not found wanting, who, formerly his staunch supporters, now scenting opposition in the air, held back, hesitating, afraid to compromise themselves by adhering to the fortunes of a man whose actions might be discredited by the very organization of which he was the head. Declining to take the chair of presiding officer which Garnett offered him, the governor withdrew to an angle of the stage where he was joined by Keast. This one, still unalterably devoted to Magnus, acquainted him briefly with the tenor of the speeches that had been made. I am ashamed of them, governor, he protested indignantly, to lose their nerve now, to fail you now, it makes my blood boil. If you had succeeded yesterday, if all had gone well, do you think we would have heard of any talk of assumption of authority or acting without advice and consent? As if there was any time to call a meeting of the executive committee. If you hadn't acted as you did, the whole county would have been grabbed by the railroad. Get up, Governor, and bring them all up standing. Just tear them all to pieces. Show them that you are the head, the boss. That's what they need. That killing yesterday has shaken the nerve clean out of them. For the instant, the governor was taken all aback. What, his lieutenants were failing him? What, he was to be questioned, interpolated upon yesterday's irrepressible conflict? Had disaffection appeared in the ranks of the League? At this, of all moments? He put from him his terrible grief. 
cause was in danger. At the instant he was the president of the League only, the chief, the master. A royal anger surged within him, a wide, towering scorn of opposition. He would crush this disaffection in its incipiency, would vindicate himself and strengthen the cause at one and the same time. He stepped forward and stood in the speaker's place, turning partly toward the audience, partly toward the assembled leaguers. "'Gentlemen of the League,' he began, "'citizens of Bonneville.' But at once the silence in which the governor had begun to speak was broken by a shout. It was as though his words had furnished a signal. In a certain quarter of the gallery, directly opposite, a man rose, and in a voice partly of derision, partly of defiance, cried out, "'How about the bribery of those two delegates at Sacramento? Tell us about that. That's what we want to hear about.' A great confusion broke out. The first cry was repeated not only by the original speaker, but by a whole group of which he was but a part. Others in the audience, however, seeing in the disturbance only the clamor of a few railroad supporters, attempted to howl them down, hissing vigorously, and exclaiming, "'Put them out! Put them out!' "'Order! Order!' called Garnett, pounding with his gavel. The whole opera house was in an uproar. But the interruption of the governor's speech was evidently not unpremeditated. It began to look like a deliberate and planned attack. Persistently, doggedly, the group in the gallery vociferated, "'Tell us how you bribed the delegates at Sacramento. Before you throw mud at the railroad, let's see if you are clean yourself.' "'Put em out! Put em out!' "'Briber! Briber! Magnus Derrick! Unconvicted Briber! Put him out!' Keast, beside himself with anger, pushed down the aisle underneath where the recalcitrant group had its place, and shaking his fist, called up at them. "'You were paid to break up this meeting. If you have anything to say, you will be afforded the opportunity. But if you do not let the gentlemen proceed, the police will be called upon to put you out.' But at this, the man who had raised the first shout leaned over the balcony rail, and, his face flaming with wrath, shouted, "'Yeah, talk to me of your police. Look out, we don't call on them first to arrest your president for bribery. You and your howl about law and justice and corruption here he turned to the audience read about him read the story of how the sacramento convention was bought by magnus derrick president of the san joaquin league here's the facts printed and proved with the words he stooped down and from under his seat dragged forth a great package of extra editions of the bonneville mercury not an hour off the presses other equally large bundles of the paper appeared in the hands of the surrounding group the strings were cut, and in handfuls and armfuls the papers were flung out over the heads of the audience underneath. The air was full of the flutter of the newly printed sheets. They swarmed over the rim of the gallery like clouds of monstrous winged insects, settling upon the heads and into the hands of the audience, were passed swiftly from man to man, and within five minutes of the first outbreak every one in the opera house had read Genslinger's detailed and substantiated account of Magnus Derrick's deal with the political bosses of the Sacramento Convention. Genslinger, after pocketing the governor's hush money, had sold him out. Keast, one quiver of indignation, made his way back upon the stage. The leaguers were in wild confusion. Half the assembly of them were on their feet, bewildered, shouting vaguely. From proscenium wall to foyer, 
the opera house was a tumult of noise the gleam of the thousands of the mercury extras was like the flash of white caps on a troubled sea keast faced the audience liars he shouted striving with all the power of his voice to dominate the clamor liars and slanderers your paper is the paid organ of the corporation you have not one shadow of proof to back you up do you choose this of all times to heap your calumny upon the head of an honorable gentleman already prostrated by your murder of his son proofs we demand your proofs we've got the very assemblymen themselves came back the answering shout let derrick speak where is he hiding if this is a lie let him deny it let him disprove the charge derrick derrick thundered the opera house keast wheeled about where was magnus he was not in sight upon the stage he had disappeared crowding through the throng of leaguers keast got from off the stage into the wings here the crowd was no less dense nearly every one had a copy of the mercury it was being read aloud to groups here and there and once keast overheard the words say i wonder if this is true after all well and even if it was cried keast turning upon the speaker we should be the last ones to kick in any case it was done for our benefit it elected the ranchers commission a lot of benefit we got out of the ranchers commission retorted the other and then protested a third speaker that ain't the way to do if he did do it bribing legislatures why we were bucking against corrupt politics we couldn't afford to be corrupt keast turned away with a gesture of impatience he pushed his way further on at last opening a small door in a hallway back of the stage he came upon magnus the room was tiny it was a dressing room only two nights before it had been used by the leading actress of a comic opera troupe which had played for three nights at bonneville a tattered sofa and limping toilet table occupied a third of the space the air was heavy with the smell of stale grease paint ointments and sachet faded photographs of young women in tights and gauzes ornamented the mirror and the walls underneath the sofa was an old pair of corsets the spangled skirt of a pink dress turned inside out hung against the wall and in the midst of such environment surrounded by an excited group of men who gesticulated and shouted in his very face pale alert agitated his thin lips pressed tightly together stood magnus derrick here cried keast as he entered closing the door behind him where's the governor here magnus i've been looking for you the crowd has gone wild out there you've got to talk em down come out there and give those blacklegs a lie they are saying you are hiding but before magnus could reply garnett turned to keast well that's what we want him to do and he won't do it yes yes cried the half dozen men who crowded around magnus yes that's what we want him to do keast turned to magnus what what's all this governor he exclaimed you've got to answer that hey why don't you give him the lie ah uh, ah uh magnus loosened the collar about his throat it is a lie i will not stoop i would not would be uh, it will be beneath my my it will be beneath me keast stared in amazement was this the great man the leader indomitable of roman integrity of roman valor before whose voice whole conventions had quailed was it possible he was 
afraid to face those hired vilifiers? Well, how about this? demanded Garnett suddenly. It is a lie, isn't it, that commission was elected honestly, wasn't it? How dare you, sir? Magnus burst out. How dare you question me? Call me to account. Please understand, sir, that I tolerate... Oh, quit it! cried a voice from the group. You can't scare us, Derrick. That sort of talk was well enough once. But it don't go any more. We want a yes or no answer. It was gone. That old-time power of mastery, that faculty of command. The ground crumbled beneath his feet. Long since it had been by his own hand undermined. Authority was gone. Why keep up this miserable sham any longer? Could they not read the lie in his face, in his voice? What a folly to maintain the wretched pretense. He had failed. He was ruined. Harran was gone. His ranch would soon go. His money was gone. Lyman was worse than dead. His own honor had been prostituted. Gone. Gone. Everything he held dear. Gone lost and swept away in that fierce struggle. And suddenly, and all in a moment, the last remaining shells of the fabric of his being, the sham that had stood already wonderfully long, cracked and collapsed. Was the commission honestly elected? insisted Garnett. Were the delegates? Did you bribe the delegates? We were obliged to shut our eyes to means faltered Magnus. There was no other way to... Then suddenly, and with the last dregs of his resolution, he concluded with, Yes, I gave them two thousand dollars each. Oh, hell! Oh, my God! exclaimed Keast, sitting swiftly down upon the ragged sofa. There was a long silence. A sense of poignant embarrassment descended upon those present. No one knew what to say or where to look. Garnet, with a labored attempt at nonchalance, murmured, I see. Well, that's what I was trying to get at. Yes, I see. Well, said Gethings at length, stirring himself, I guess I'll go home. There was a movement. The group broke up, the men making for the door. One by one they went out. The last to go was Keast. He came up to Magnus and shook the governor's limp hand. Goodbye, governor, he said. I'll see you again pretty soon. Don't let this discourage you. They'll come around all right after a while. So long, he went out, shutting the door. And seated in the one chair of the room, Magnus Derrick remained a long time looking at his face in the cracked mirror that for so many years had reflected the painted faces of soubrettes, in this atmosphere of stale perfume and moldy rice-powder. It had come, his fall, his ruin. After so many years of integrity and honest battle, his life had ended here, in an actress's dressing-room, deserted by his friends, his son murdered, his dishonesty known, an old man, broken, discarded, discredited, and abandoned. Before nightfall of that day, 
Bonneville was further excited by an astonishing bit of news. S. Behrman lived in a detached house at some distance from the town, surrounded by a group of live oak and eucalyptus trees. At a little after half-past six, as he was sitting down to his supper, a bomb was thrown through the window of his dining-room, exploding near the doorway leading into the hall. The room was wrecked, and nearly every window of the house shattered. By a miracle, S. Behrman himself remained untouched. End of Book Two, Chapter Seven